We'd all love to spend more time outside, to see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it. But modern life can push us away from nature. Enter Berta. Berta is the free new app that boosts your birdwatching experience. Fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn seeing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Berta. Sign up today. It is free. You can find Berta, that is B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Look around your home. I bet there's a bunch of bird-related books or art. And of course there are, because, well, birds are your obsession. If you're looking for a great way to discover more bird-friendly brands, bird artists, authors, and so much more, we'd love to introduce you to BirderBox. BirderBox is a subscription service that sends you a package four times a year filled with birdie things that allow you to dive deeper into your passion. BirderBox is the world of birding unboxed. Learn more at birderbox.com. That's B-R-D-R-B-O-X-X.com. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. New news on the bird name front. I know that some of you out there are excited, and some are undoubtedly rolling your eyes, but it's arguably one of the biggest stories in North American ornithology and birding in some time, so buckle up, I guess. It will get some coverage here. Most of you have probably heard the news that the AOS, the American Ornithological Society, has accepted the recommendation by the ad hoc English Bird Name Committee that all eponymous bird names, that is, birds named after people, be changed. And that the Taxonomic Committee, the NACC, which has previously dealt with English bird names in addition to their primary role of dealing with taxonomic changes, splits and lumps, reorganizations, that sort of thing, will have an advisory role in these changes. The process is slated to begin next year. There are some logistics still to be worked out, but it looks like the AOS checklist and probably other checklists, as that ad hoc committee included representatives from the ABA, eBird, and the South American Classification Committee, will see some new names for birds in the coming years. We talked about this in a This Month in Birding a few months ago. I feel like I did a poor job laying out the background then, and for that I apologize. So I'll try to do a better job here now. The gist is that there has been a movement to remove generally harmful names, including eponyms, for some time. Long-tailed duck, for instance, was formerly known as Old Squaw, the unique bird name that was simultaneously racist, sexist, and ageist. That was changed more than 20 years ago. And more recently, Thick-Billed Longspur, formerly named for Confederate General John McCown, was changed not all that long ago, a couple of years now. It's worth noting that this whole thing is sort of the bird wing haha, of an entire movement. There's been a process called the Better Common Names Project from the Entomological Society of America that has been active for a few years now, changing insect names. The USGS has been actively changing names of locations. For instance, in September, Colorado's Mount Evans was renamed Mount Blue Sky. So this stuff is in the air. Uh, that is another pun, I guess, referring to both birds and mountains and, and many insects for that matter. Basically, the idea is that several common names formerly recognized in the last 200 years don't really align with the goal of better communication because they might contain derogatory words or inappropriate geographical references, etc. Basically, it's the idea that names are tools that we use for communication of information, and some names are certainly better than others to that end. And I think that is sort of a fundamental change in the way that we approach natural history that is more in line with the modern perception of outdoor recreation, which includes birding, insects, climbing 14ers. 
as a more sort of egalitarian pursuit. Certainly when a lot of these birds were first named, recreational birding was not really a thing. No one was clamoring for descriptive names for Hammond's flycatcher or Clark's grebe or Bottery's sparrow, though we'd certainly appreciate those now. There were certainly ornithologists out there who disapproved of the notion, but it was a very popular one, and a lot of birds ended up with those names. And, and the people that gave them were cataloging the biodiversity of the West, at least in North America, and honorifics, admittedly, were a quick and easy way to do so. Maybe throw a little respect to a friend or someone you admired along the way. But we are in a different time now. Those names are not useful for recreational birders, are occasionally tied to individuals whose beliefs or actions are indefensible in the 21st century, arguably in the 18th and 19th as well, but certainly now. And we have, as a birding community, the opportunity to fix this. Correct those oversights in a way that sets birding on a path into the future. That feels kind of exciting to me, and I have high hopes that the birding community can step up here. So I hope that gives a little bit more background as to what is going on. I really don't know about the timeline yet or the logistics, only that a fairly significant procedural hurdle has been passed. I have no doubt that the ongoing discussion will be noteworthy and I hope fun to birders in the ABA area. So we will keep you up to date on that. For the record, there's a really wonderful document that was released uh, along with the announcement for this from the AOS that gives a lot of background on the justification for these changes. I would absolutely encourage people to take some time to read it. It is well thought out, it is thorough, and it is linked in the show notes. Speaking of taxonomy, on the show today, one of the biggest taxonomic changes of the year was the decision to lump Pacific Slope and Cordilleran Flycatcher into Western Flycatcher. Western Flycatcher is back. And with us today is Alec Hopping, who's one of the principals involved in making that case to the relevant authorities. He's here to talk about all of that, why Western Flycatcher should be one species, and how to get a bird's status changed. All that after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of November 2023. Exciting news out of British Columbia where a fishing boat working the waters around Haida Gwaii Island had a pair of unexpected visitors in the last month. One was a masked booby photographed in late September, which represents BC's first record of the species. Interestingly, BC has had three Nazca boobies before they had a single masked booby. About a month later, the very same boat was visited by a brown booby, which was only the province's 21st record, but notable for the potential for slightly off-color jokes. In Georgia, a bar-tailed godwit was photographed in coastal Tybee County. This species has been annual in recent years in the southeast, but this is the first for Georgia. And in Virginia, a Mexican bilateer was photographed at a feeder in Carroll County, a state first, which, if accepted, puts Virginia's total hummingbird total to an even and impressive 10. Those are the highlights for this past week. For the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. Not this week, though, because I'm out of town. But you can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and an ABA community. One of the biggest taxonomic changes this year was the long-anticipated lump of the species formerly known as Pacific Slope and Cordilleran Flycatcher back into Western Flycatcher. It's a story with all the taxonomic highs and lows packed into a, a slightly confusing and cryptic package. Alec Hopping is a birder and researcher whose work played a very large role in this decision being made. He wrote an article that was published early this year in North American Birds called Unraveling Western Flycatchers, A Case Against the Split. He is with me to unravel not only the flycatchers, but the process of making that case. Welcome, Alec. Happy to be here. 
Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about this because this was the this was the big taxonomic news. We don't always get big taxonomic news. Sometimes there are little uh, changes on the edges, but this was a big one, removing a species from a lot of people's uh, checklists. Uh, we don't see a ton of lumps anymore. We're in a, we're definitely in an age of splits. Uh, but it was interesting to see this this happen. Can you lay out a little of the history of the species or species pair? When did the original split come to be? What were the arguments in favor of it? Yeah, so. Originally, these species were combined um, as Western flycatcher back from the 1800s when the, the type specimens were collected um, in the 1860s. There was a bunch of kind of weird noise around this complex um, in the mm-hmm. mid-1900s, early 1900s. Uh, at one point, it was called Oaxacan green flycatcher. They had a bunch of different subspecies that they were sort of really sort of arbitrarily naming. They had Sonora flycatcher. Yeah. Um, that seemed to be the case uh, back then. <laughs> There's a yeah, lot of arbitrary they, naming. They were obviously just doing everything. Actually, one of them, um, one of the forms, they they took a specimen from the same mountain range that already had a name subspecies, and then they just named it something else because they said it was like slightly different <laughs> color. I mean, just remarkably, they were doing whatever. So that yeah. it was kind of fun. To Wild West, literally. <laughs> yeah, and so um, Ned K. Johnson um, did a bunch of research on this group. In, uh, in the 70s and 80s, mostly. And he put together a huge anthology on them, really, um, that included the Western Flycatcher Complex and then also Flabescence, which is now yellowish. Um, so well over 100 pages. I mean, it's a huge amount of work on them. Um, and so when he did that research, they he basically introduced the, the subspecies concept that um, Clemens currently uses, uh, the, the five subspecies model. Um, basically figured out how most of what we know today works um and then you know at the time he was still a little bit unsure about if he wanted to recommend the split and then they they had a follow-up study um in 1988 they did some research on um how they interacted in northern california in the siskiyou region um and based on the information from that 1988 study uh they recommended to the, the aos that they split them how unusual is it to have like a 100-page treatise on an individual species in Western North America? I can't imagine that there's a lot of people doing work in that depth for even, you know, extremely common species, let alone something as cryptic as Western flycatcher. No, no. And and what's crazy at the t- is like looking through that book, um, I mean, like all the figures and stuff, I mean, they, they weren't using, they had none of the programs we have today. I mean, some of that stuff, like, I don't even know how they, how they made some of the graphics and stuff. I mean, he had, um, all, like pages and pages of, of spectrograms and of like basically everything. I mean, he covered it in incredible detail. Um, the issue with the process on that is that they didn't realize they occurred in what we now know as the main overlap area. And so that's, that mm-hmm. was the main, um, well, reason that that ended up not being the most valid framework, um, but the you know the areas where they did look, it was just a pretty incredible level of detail that really hasn't been mapped. Yeah, um, yeah I imagine one, so. Yeah, I mean it was it's pretty awesome. Like it's pretty crazy that they did that. I don't really. Yeah, I mean it would have been a ton of work. It's really impressive. Um, definitely, that whole lifetime's worth of work. I imagine. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean de- it took him decades. Yeah. So what has sort of changed in that intervening time that made you and the others believe that the split was probably unfounded or premature or you know, whatever you want to call it? Because it's, it's, 
we sometimes think of these things as more or less cut and dried, but it does feel like this situation is very nebulous. Like they're subspecies, but they're heading in the direction of species, but they're not full species yet. It's it, there's a lot going on here. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of I think a lot of the reason for that with this pairing in particular is that because they are empids, there's um, for a long time been sort of a taboo around talking about them. So yeah, the, the yeah. only people who really would dare to question anything about the, the status <laughs> quo, um, it's just a pretty small percentage of birders that were even interested in dealing with it. Um, so, you know, at least for me, my like role in it is I was doing point counts up in Montana, um, northwestern Montana, like a lot of you know, college age kids do. And I was in the, the region where the range maps had them overlapping, like any 20 something birder, you know, I was looking to see if there was anything I could find up there, maybe things to keep my eyes out for. And so I started digging mm-hmm. in a little bit um, to the complex. We were supposed to just put them as Western flycatcher. And I was like, well, you know, there's chestnut bag chickadee and stuff up there. There's probably Pacific Slope. And so I really like, started really paying attention to them in that area, making a lot of recordings, um, trying to find if there was some intuitive boundary because the I, I just didn't really understand where the where the switch was supposed to happen if it wasn't in Montana. Right. And it got to the point where I actually started getting really frustrated with it because there was no intuitive point where it seemed to change. I mean, you'd have what were supposed to be Corriere and flycatchers in states that only had Cordilleran on the state list, but they were with a bunch of, you know, varied thrush and Pacific Wren and um, Townsend's Warbler. And yeah, it just didn't really add up. And so I stacked up a bunch of days off and I drove like as far as I could west into Washington just to try to see if I could find like, you know, huh. surely there's a difference, right? And I woke up in in eastern Washington um, and they sounded the same. And I was really <laughs> So I kind of I had a little bit of like, a, I just didn't really understand how any of it made sense. So I went back to um, Cornell where I was studying as an undergrad and I managed to track down the original 1980 book that I was just talking about, the hundred something. Mm-hmm. And I opened it up on, on like literally right at the very beginning of the book was the range map. And in that region, which I refer to in this split and stuff as the greater Kootenai. So that's like northwest, far northwestern Montana, far northern Idaho, Panhandle. Uh, far northeastern Washington, and then southeastern British Columbia, southwestern Alberta, kind of. So, like, there's this little region. It's it's basically like interior temperate rainforest. It has it's just an it has western red cedar and um, a bunch of like weird biogeographic artifacts. And yeah. so, I was curious, yeah, how they treated that. And I opened the range map, and it was just blank. <laughs> I didn't even want to deal with it. Yeah. They, just, they just didn't have either of them occurring there. And I saw that and I sent it to some people and it was like, dude, this makes absolutely no sense. So I, yeah, like I, I mean, I checked out the book. I actually need to return it. I've had it. <laughs> Still got it out. <laughs> yeah, I definitely paid for it, but it should, I mean, it, it was used appropriately. I'll give it back to them <laughs> now. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I read the whole thing and he, it was a little interesting because I, I, I honestly, I don't think they went there. Because the the wording, I mean, they, you know, Johnson, and they were actually like a little bit dismissive of uh, evidence that huh. they occurred in that region. Um, 
actually outwardly dismissive at points in Eastern Washington. So do you think that they just didn't go there or they did, didn't want to go there or they weren't able to get, it wasn't easy to get to? Was there something that, you know, kept this part of the world off their radar or was it intentional? I guess that's hard to determine. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I think that there's a few possible contributing factors. So mm-hmm. one of them is that, yeah, they just didn't go there. It is quite remote. It's really far out there. I mean, even yeah. how people don't really go there. Yeah. Um, the, the, and also because there, it weren't known to occur there. So there was some research done, you know, some like censuses of birds in British Columbia in the 90s. Um, and some of that suggested that it might be a recent colonization in that region. Um, mm-hmm. Hmm. maybe because of land clearing. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm a little lukewarm on that. Um, yeah. but that's one of, one of the theories. The other one is that just because of the, they're a little bit scarce in that part of the country. Um, they, the habitats a little different, they're more in like ravines, um, and then also in built areas. So like I had one, one of the recordings that was used in this was, it's from a McDonald's parking lot in a, yeah, in classic, Montana. classic birding. Yeah, classic. <laughs> but, it, it, they're just in like kind of weird places. They're not mm. usually in the the contiguous forest spots that most surveys may have been concentrated, so they may have just been missed. Mm. Um, I just I tend to think they may have just overlooked that area. I mean, again, this was ridiculously hard to do at the time they did it. I think that for like one dude or however many assistants he had working with him was just. I mean, that's just not enough people. I mean, it's it's just hard. Even now, like if you look at some of the more recent research, there's kind of a paucity of records um, from that region or genetically or, I mean, just in general, people really aren't going up there. Huh. Um, so yeah, some whatever it was, though, they were not there. And it kind of, you know, so the entire premise of everything that was yeah, done inf- before now was the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, only, only based on Northern California, um, which we know is, yeah, I mean, there's, I guess there's courier and ish type birds there, but it's kind of disjunct, like it's not really contiguous with the main range. Um, so maybe it's some fragment population. It's it's just not necessarily representative of how they behave in life. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you were using uh, other species, like a suite of other species, to find these Pacific Slope type birds in uh, in places where you might expect uh, Cordilleran type birds. Was that always the thing that you were keying in on when you were trying to find? These like oh this this place has varied thrush as you say and, and chestnut back chickadee and this place has what mountain chickadee and and uh, whatever else is there and yeah. that was the sort of association that you would find you know cordier and quote unquote types and Pacific Slope types right yeah I mean it, it, at least me personally my like birding philosophy or at least what I'm trying to do a lot when I'm in the field is um, I don't know I call it intuition tuning which is basically just like the idea that, yeah, I mean, humans are intuitively, we're kind of good at like sensing the vibe places. I mean, that's what we are evolved to do in a lot of those settings. And so a lot of that does come with, you know, what does this forest feel like? What kinds of other species mm-hmm. are here? What's the soundscape like? Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just all lights firing. This is the Pacific Northwest. And then here are these Western yeah. flycatchers that I'm supposed to be calling Cordierans. And that, that yeah, it was just a disconnect there, and I know that that yeah. has been a disconnect for people in Idaho and Montana um, in the past, and then also people in Washington who those birds sounded a little different, and they to them that feels like the interior West, right? Because it has right. ponderosa and stuff, and it's just it doesn't feel normal to them either, um, which I guess sort of speaks to the yeah the, the issue at large, right? Yeah. 
So, so how different are these vocalizations that you're trying to key in on? Because I know that, you know, for a long time, you know, bird books that have had both Cordilleran and Pacific Slope flycatcher have made the distinction between the, the calls of these two species. And the issue a lot with this, with this lump is that the, the, the differences between these calls are a lot muddier than perhaps people uh, wanted to pretend that they were when we were, they were two species instead of one. So what are the sort of things that you're trying to listen for for one species that would be absent, say, in the other? Right. So the the birds basically at extremes they can kind of, they can sound quite different. Um, mm-hmm. just, I, I I have trouble describing it. I know that um, <laughs> they, you do your best. <laughs> has described it uh, better than than I have and some other guys. But um, you know, like Pacific Slope tends to be higher. It's uh, like a sharper, higher frequency, contiguous. They, a lot of times they say Cordillera is two parted and Pacific Slope is one parted. Me um, personally, I think some of that is a little bit of. I think there's some feedback loops there with like how comfortable okay. people are saying yeah. it. Um, we found that a lot of, you know, actually Johnson himself. I won't even like he he found that with the call notes he could not fit them to any qualitative framework, um, hmm. even with all the stuff he had. So he basically just had to like do it off vibe. Um, he couldn't he couldn't fit them into any categories that were consistent. Because even individual birds were making things. So for mostly with, with, for me, I looked at the spectrograms. Um, mm-hmm. and you can just see, I mean, it's really sort of, uh, it's, it's a consistent, like you can find the, the gap spectrograms between each sound all the way across the duration of the range. It's just that because this huge area, um, most like the Kootenays in Northwestern Montana and stuff that people aren't getting recordings, um, actually basically all of Montana is within that intermediate area. And so most recordings are coming from Colorado and California or Washington State, mm. west of the Cascades. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they do sound different in those places, but so do Spotted Tohies. I mean, so do House yeah. Peoples, right? Yeah, right. Like, so Song Sparrows, yeah. I mean, so <laughs> it was everything, yeah. yeah. Right? I'm from Colorado, and whenever I'm in Seattle, I just feel like I don't know what's going on. Like, for the first, like, 30 minutes, you know, it's really Yeah, crazy. no, I hear that, yeah. You hear some weird, like, yeah, some stuff is just weird there. But like even like Hawaii, like right, like the house finches sound a little funky, and like I don't think that's a split. <laughs> like that's been there right. for how long, right? Um, so yeah, so I think it, it is that, but it's just like that alone doesn't really, especially because it is quite a lot of land area that they're in between. Um, and we found that yeah, they do cluster into groups, um, sort of, but not in a way that like indicates that they're actually, you know, that they would mainly that they would treat each other as separate species yeah. that they were interact. That's the biggest thing. There's obviously some sort of difference there. I mean, the difference is real. Uh, Johnson saw it, you see it, but it's not significant enough to rise to the level of a full species. So what, what would have caused that difference? There's a lot of species pairs in that area. I'm thinking of like California and yeah. Woodhouse's scrub jay and... Um, uh, there's, there's probably others. That's just the first that came to my mind. But like that, there, there is something happening there. I think the, the ones that we thought of most is like mountain chickadee. Oh yeah, and, that's right, gambles and baileys. Yeah, and then also spotted towhee, uh-huh. and then black-headed grosbeak. Those. Are oh, okay. Oh, cool. Mountain chickadee, spotted towhee, black-headed grosbeak all have very similar population genetic things with western flycatcher. They're all kind of in the same habitat, um, more yeah. or less. So we think what, probably what it is is that pleased to see glacial cycles where okay. um, the last ice age glaciers came down in that region. 
and they would have blocked off Cordillera and, and Pacific Slope populations um, enough so that they started developing different traits mm-hmm. on either side of that. But then once the, those glaciers receded, they sort of came back together. Yeah, um, they never got the chance to separate. Yeah, fully. not all the way. Yeah. But because they were separated in parts of the range for long periods of time, for example, Colorado and you know San Diego County, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know if mm-hmm. those breeders would go together and integrate. We don't know that. Huh. What we do know is that over the course of the entire range, their neighbors basically see their neighbors as the same species. So there's oh, no right. real okay. barrier to gene flow over the course of the entire range. Right. But if, like, you know, if you imagine like a horseshoe or something, if you put the two ends together, they might not see each other as the same. So that's like a concept called, you know, a ring species, which we, you know, we, I'm not necessarily saying it is that, but it's one of the possible models for it, um, which is that you know, like greenish warbler in the old world is one of these. Mm-hmm. So that's a possibility. Um, they could explain some of that where, again, like they might be different at points, but you can't really draw that line in a consistent yeah. way in any one area. Um, and then also just it might be a climb where they just have like, you know, neutral drift um, where the traits just kind of change because of what they're around um, and they, they don't happen to cross that barrier super frequently. I mean, I think actually one of the things that I found <laughs> looking at the spectrogram stuff is that um, the, the barriers most likely were the most relevant barriers, probably like the Red Desert in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, not that northern area because it didn't really. I mean, that just intuitively made no sense. That <laughs> that like because it's you know from basically Glacier National Park or like Missoula all the way mm-hmm. to Seattle. I mean, it's contiguous mid elevation evergreen forest. Like it's not like there's a little bit of a dry valley in Okanagan. You yeah, know, not enough to really. Area, but it's not like them up. Yeah, yeah. Like that's not. It doesn't doesn't fit any other framework that we know. Um, but that framework of like Nashville and Virginia's warbler, that does kind of make sense. Um, so, so it's maybe that, right? Cause the, the Black Hills ones are sort of, were sort of Pacific slopey. But even then, I mean, they, they do, they cross that. But it was just interesting because it, it was sort of a different divide. Um, huh. Than, yeah, than what they had surmised it was. Um, even though, you know, we don't think that it's anywhere near enough to make them different species. When you were looking at this situation with pack slope and, and Cordillera and flight edges, was it clear mm-hmm. that you needed to focus on something to make the case that they were one species? And what what was that? What was the thing that you were kind of looking for to to lump them effectively? Yeah, well, so I guess the timeline for it's important. So I had done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the book, and then there was a, a record of one in Massachusetts. Um, yeah, that was just you know normal i guess it was considered pacific slope and they had pictures of spectrograms and it was on you know aba burglar facebook group as it goes and i got into like in the comments i was like just a heads up guys but this spectrogram looks pretty much like the birds in northwestern montana and idaho not real more than the ones in yeah, the, washington the mushy like, ones the mushy birds yeah. yeah so basically this you guys are called saying this is a definitive pack slope because the spectrogram matches birds from states where pack slope isn't on the state list so that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, okay. What you're saying basically is that a, a, a number of these eastern birds might be coming. I mean, intuitively, they're probably maybe coming from further east, right, of the yeah. range. And and so, 
you know, you're taking birds from states where Paxlope is not on the state list, and then that mm-hmm. those birds are considered Paxlopes in other states. That's a little weird. And I, I don't know, I was just talking about it in the thing, and then Michael Redder who reached out to me and asked if I wanted to, like, write up a thing for it. Um, right. Which I started the process of doing and then got overwhelmed by stuff senior year. But in the process... Sure, yeah, of, no, understandable. I, yeah. Right, yeah. I had reached out to Ethan Link, um, who, shout out to him for, you know, involving me in the more legit parts of this. Um, he... Um, and I just, you know, he, he did some heavy lifting on um, genetic stuff in, in 2019. He has a great paper. Everyone should read it. Um, that, that really delved into some of this stuff. And so I had mm-hmm. read that and I reached out with a bunch of questions about it. And um, he was really helpful. And then I sort of didn't advance any further on what I was writing. And then uh, a couple of years later, he reached out to me that um, he, he had gotten kind of the heads up that it might be time to write this up. And so he, yeah. he was like, hey, you want to write it with me? Um, because you seemed like you, you know, had field experience and, you know, you did a good job involving a young... Yeah, but you, if you can combine field experience and uh, spectrograms and, and, you know, observations with genetic stuff, that's like slam dunk. Right, exactly. And I was super stoked to like do a bunch of like, you know, I mean, it was, that's exactly what I've been hoping for since I got my yeah. vendetta working up there in the... <laughs> Yeah, so so we did that, and then basically, I mean, once we found that range map that was broken, um, mm-hmm. we had a pretty clean path to to make the case that it didn't really, because you know, overall, we just weren't seeing any evidence. I mean, right? People argue about biological species concept or phylogenetic right. species concept, blah blah blah. Um, the bottom line with this one is it fulfilled nothing from either. Neither of them. Yeah. yeah. It, it <laughs> yeah, wasn't checking no, any boxes. So it's yeah. like, no matter how you want to look at this, it just doesn't, you know, it's just not consistent with any framework we have. Are they different? Yeah. But like, yeah, ish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not in a way that like fits our, our binary categories. That was the main thing, right? It's like, mm-hmm. yes, they're different. Um, but I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I think with this kind of taxonomy stuff, we sort of, sometimes have to go back to the reality that like this stuff exists for humans. Right. Like, right. Like the, the, the processes going on are much more complex. Um, we're never going to be able to like, just put them in nice bins and boxes. And like, at the end of the day, like the birds see each other, how they see each other, the taxon- mm-hmm. taxonomic labels are for humans. And like, when we lose the ability to like consistently identify them in the hand or where you can't even do studies in the, in, a, you know, in the overlap zone because there's no way to tell which ones are which. Like, there's no... And that, that's one of the things with the Siskiyou region thing, where, like, Johnson's work about, um, you know, were they interbreeding when they overlapped? It's still a little bit unclear how he was even totally sure which birds were Pacific Slopes and which were Fort Year. Like, it's based on the measurements that they had sort of... Vibes, determined. like you said. <laughs> right. But we don't... Like, that... You know, it's kind of a, a, a circular thing. It's so true because, you know, in the, in the paper that you wrote for North American birds, there's some really great uh, eBird range maps that show like these, these fine lines, like these very, very uh, precise lines between what is supposedly Pacific Slope and what supposedly is Cordilleran, particularly in eastern Washington yeah. and, and Idaho and, and uh, Montana. And it's like there's no way that, you, that people are actually making these, these decisions. It's as you say, it's a feedback loop. It's a Pacific Slope because it's in a Pacific Slope place, and therefore we're not going to question it because mm-hmm. questioning it, as you did, becomes a you know a can of worms very very quickly. 
Yeah, what, right. And, and moreover, it wasn't even about, is it a Pacific Slope place? It was about, where's the main population center of the state that has that records committee? Because for Washington, yeah. like, all, everyone lives in Western Washington. Everyone's in the much, Western Washington. Not everyone, yeah. but, you know, a lot of the... A lot of them, um, yeah. Yeah, and so for them, it's like, this is, here's this distant foreign land. Well, we're not going to, like, <laughs> claim that, you know? And then same yeah. with Montana. Like, most of the people are living in areas that are pretty definitely, been to, you know, feel interior westy. And so they don't, you know, like they just didn't want to mess with. So it's just funny how that, you know, same with Idaho, right? Most people live in Boise. Um, So up in the north, like it feels a lot like the Pacific Northwest, but yeah. So that that was a little, (laughs) didn't really hold up. Same with the vagrant thing where like. I was going to ask about the vagrants because I live in the east and, you know, we get vagrant western flycatchers there's uh, every time there's this long discussion about is it a pack slope is it a cordillera and how do we figure that out will someone please get the poop so we can run a dna test on the on the feces or whatever and like it's it's this whole rigmarole that you sort of have to go through and the consensus seems to be that by and large these birds are pack slope but i don't really i never really understood why that consensus was that way do you have any insight into that again it's kind of like the, the, the pairing species thing that I was that I wrote about in the thing, mm-hmm. like I mean, how many Virginia's warbler vagrants are there in the East compared to like Townsend's warbler, right? Yeah, far fewer. Yeah, really, you can go down the list, right? It, like, like it's just those high, those more northerly breeders that have, um, they just they they just they have bigger population sizes. I think they mm-hmm. the near vagrancy works a little better with them, um, perhaps. I mean, just, yeah, just no, I agree of, with you. Yeah, interior west species just in general don't vagrate quite as much as the as the far western ones. Yeah. Yeah, or if they do, it's like kind of a little, you know, they'll go into western Oklahoma or something. It's not yeah. quite the same sort of range. Right. They aren't flying as far. And um, yeah, I think it's I think a lot of it's that a lot of it's population size. I mean, a lot of the interior west, like it's just there's a lot of kind of not habitat in between the little patches of habitat, whereas in the and it's just a lot of contiguous forest um i that that's my guess on it uh i think it just kind of lines up with those things but i'm not sure well it's not not anything we have to question anymore (laughs) it's much easier thank god um so what did you have to do to get people to make this decision did you find that ornithology was sort of open to this or did you have any sort of pushback or were we generally in a place where we're willing to accept that uh, Pacific Slope and Cordilleran were were one species. Yeah, well, again. I mean, even had been reached out to by people affiliated with the committee who had who had basically wink wink nudge nudge said like might be time. Yeah, I think you guys have enough. Um, I had, and I yeah. also did write the NAB paper eventually. Yeah. So um, yeah, which which mostly became the proposal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and a lot of that was just to you know, to put into writing in a different source mm-hmm. the stuff that we were going to be bringing up for the first time in the proposal because you don't want to be doing that. I went back and I looked at the last, um, I don't know how many, four or five, six, seven years of all proposals submitted to the AOS, um, if they were successful or not, what the comments were. I was pretty like, I don't know, I just decided to go in because this was during COVID too and I didn't really have a whole lot to do. Yeah. I was like, you know what, like we probably only have one shot at this. Um, some proposals have not, been successful for reasons that might not be related to the validity of the actual thing they're arguing and more about like you know they wrote like two pages or something and i was like we're just gonna leave no stone unturned on this like let's just go so deep and cover every single page Mm -hmm. i went and i 
pulled a bunch of keywords from all the comments that were made by committee members from the last five or six years and made sure nice. to them all in the proposal um, or address them all like very directly. Um, mm-hmm. Basically modeled it. I mean, sort of like the, the Thayer skull, the Thayer goal one that was successful, that was super oh, yeah. long, we went through the history. Um, and then, yeah, we just, I mean, I just, it was like, what, 18 pages or something? It was ridiculous. And uh, <laughs> it just, it went through like, it basically covered every possible thing you could. And I think yeah. by the end of that, we just we felt really good about it because there was really nothing that I mean I just don't even know what else there really was to say like we we kind of I don't know I mean I, I think that overwhelmed them people disagreed <laughs> like it, this is a it's yeah. a rare lump where it's like a popular lump I think because at least I got a couple uh, less sympathetic emails but that was it the most part people were happy and I'd also like you know even though a lot of people lose a life or whatever an ABA birth. Um, a lot of people get a plus one. I mean, even I got one because I found one once in Oklahoma that we didn't know what it was. Oh, nice! You yeah, know, a lot of people yeah. Are getting like some downstream list benefits from it, which I think also helped mm-hmm. the mood. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so that's part. We of are we are all birders after all. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean that's what's funny about these things, right? Is that there's a pretty clear human element, which is why I think it's good to kind of really center that with taxonomic discussions because yeah like, that's what it is you know i mean it's for people to understand these systems better so yeah that's what we did um yeah yeah we just wrote it up submitted it and then it passed unanimously so that was sweet yeah it was fast i remember it being very fast and then everyone uh like in my state where we have paxlope slash cordillera on our uh on our state checklist rejoiced because we finally got to resolve that uh, annoying slash in our in our checklist. I think a lot of people are pretty happy, I, as happy as you can be uh, with a lump. Uh, yeah. I know that folks were a little bit uh, antsy about the the Thayer's Iceland goal one that you that you just m- mentioned, but uh, for the most part, everyone sort of accepted this one. It felt like right, and yeah, and there's like there's red pools. There was the Caracara yeah. one. There's a few examples that went both directions, and so from that we had a pretty good basis to. Um, Basically, to see what where proposals were falling short, um, mm-hmm. or what things were were enough, what like you know the character one, right? Like a, yeah. a lot of it was actually yeah, framed that. in that context because it is similar um, hmm. in certain ways. Where it's just you know it's there's a big region that people really hadn't spent much time in, and when you really zoom yeah. in, you know these these boundaries between the two groups start dissolving, right? And it just doesn't yeah. really make sense. Um, yeah, I mean, and I got, again, intuitively, like people, the, the reputation with these was not very good, anyways. Um, yeah, exactly right. that's like the, from the starting point. I mean, people just—I remember as a kid, like asking about how you separate them, and people would just roll their eyes, you know. So exactly, yeah, it's been years. <laughs> yeah, I think they actually look a little different sometimes, but you know, like sometimes I think Pacific sub ones are a little browner, but like not in like a real way, right? It's just like maybe the average, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, Johnson found. Um, but again, that yeah. doesn't mean they're different species. That's just like, you know, a little bit of suntan. So, are there any other big questions in Impedinax that are out there? Are you coming for Willow and Alder next? <laughs> no, I, I actually. Uh, <laughs> I think I, that was probably good. <laughs> I'm kind of a, a bull for Willow Alder visual ID, actually. I'm kind of on the opposite side. Well, this is actually good now because I have a little bit of ideological cover for um, when there I think Impedinax about like identifying hammonds and stuff without having, like, <laughs> you know, in the East. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> you know, I'm just not on one side of the spectrum. But yeah, so the main right. thing with this that's interesting is that um, from Ethan's research in 2019, when he, he did the genetic stuff, he found that the birds in Sierra Madre del Sur in um, Oaxaca and Guerrero in southern Mexico are like super different genetically and, and it cuts oh, really? off really sharply. Different from huh. these northern ones. One of the things, yeah, that Ethan found that's super interesting is that so there's like a central Mexican group and that that group is, was more different from either Pacific Slope or Cordillera and then those two were from each other. But mm. those were like unrecognized as anything. So that was another part of the undermining huh. confusion. Thing. So we may end up with multiple species anyway, just not the same multiple species right. that we started with. Right. So that's the, that's the question I think that is most remains most interesting with him. There's also Insulacata, which is the Channel Islands one, and then um, mm. like the, the Southern Paha one. Um, but both of those are probably just Pacific Slope, whatever Western Flag Rift. The, but the, the Sierra Madre Ilster ones are definitely worth looking into. That that area is an area of significant endemism, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it would make sense that there would might be some endemics there that we don't see, you know, or don't notice. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of endemics in, in that mountain range. Alec Hopping, he is the author of the Case Against the Split, Unraveling Western Flycatchers, and also the person responsible for One Less Bird on your life list. You can take it up with him personally, if you like. <laughs> Alec, um, thanks so much for all the work that you've done uh, for the interesting conversation about a bird that I think a lot of people feel like they might know, but don't really know. Uh, that's good stuff. Um, good luck with whatever you're doing down the road. Yeah, of course. And you guys too. And if anyone has any, like, really, if you're mad about it, please let me know. <laughs> The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. Not only do you get to support community projects like this podcast, but membership gets a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like OM System Cameras and Lenses. That's uh, You might know them as Olympus. They'll give you a 10% discount on OM System Cameras with an ABA membership. Depending on what you get, that pays for your membership right there. You can find out how to do that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to James Goodwin of Gainesville, Florida, Jim Johnson of Golden Valley, Minnesota, and Jill Medley of Bethesda, Ohio, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as their reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who has urged the relevant authorities to change yellow-bellied flycatcher to corduroyan flycatcher by virtue of their tannish color and ridged appearance. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wonders if a Western flycatcher with a wing injury might more accurately be called a Pacific Lope flycatcher. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who agree that in the event willow and alder flycatchers are lumped again, that the old name is modified to trail flycatcher on account of what you have to do with a mystery bird while you wait for it to vocalize. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association, on Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. We'll catch you next week.